It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey there, I'm Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Might surprise you to be hearing from me, some smoke show Midwestern governor nobody heard about till a couple weeks ago. But governors are kind of having a moment right now. And while other govs get cool nicknames like Daddy Cuomo and Gavin Choke Me King Newsome, Trump refers to me as that woman from Michigan. But I'm not offended because I am proud to be from Michigan. And that woman is also what Trump calls his wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah, yeah, I'm nursing all the bats because... Even though most frickin' governors are laying down restrictions because of the virus, mine are somehow too far. Now, you may have heard about the protesters that gathered in the streets of our capital for Ted Nugent cosplay last week. Look, people, it's live free or die, not live free and die. And Trump advisor Stephen Moore is comparing these protesters to Rosa Parks. Yeah. If Rosa Parks was fighting for her right to get hit by a bus. Sorry, that's a little bats talking. But I support all Americans and Michiganders' freedom of speech. So if you got to protest, here are some tips on how to do it safely. Number one, stay home. I promise you can call me a bitch from the safety of your couch. It's called Twitter. So if you must head outside, maintain proper social distancing. That means six feet apart at all times. So if the tip of your AK-47 can touch the tip of your buddy's AK, back up. And please, wear face masks, but not a joker mask and not a clown mask and absolutely no masks that come with the hood. Now, like you, I have heard the rumors that I'm on the short list to be Joe Biden's vice president, the VP's VP, because if it's going to be a woman, it might as well be that woman. But my sole priority is my home state because we're not out of the woods. We never will be. We live in Michigan. 
And to anyone that stands in the way of the health and safety of my constituents, I'll remind you, the Michigan is a mitten, right? And this, this is where I live. Oh, dang it, they're throwing dog crap at my door. Knock it off! I'll throw it back! I did it last time, too! You know I will! Tom Sumner Program.com Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at University of California, Riverside, where she teaches courses in uh, feminist, queer, and heterosexuality studies. She has a new book called The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, um, and uh, her name is Jane Ward. We're going to talk with Jane. She joins me by phone. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, is there a tragedy? Well, let me let me figure this out here because the, <laughs> the the title of your book, "The Tragedy of Heterosexuality," makes me react almost like I did the first time I heard the phrase "white privilege." Um, I'm mm-hmm. not sure what to say or what to feel or what to do about that. Um, you know, my my first thought is the tra- tragedy of heterosexuality is divorce, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've had I've had a couple of those. Um, but but what what do you consider to be the tragedy of heterosexuality? That seems like it's the default position where everybody should be or kind of expects to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I agree with you that divorce is one of the tragedies of heterosexuality. Absolutely. And I do write about that in the book. Uh, and also the title is intended to be pretty attention grabbing because the argument itself is pretty nuanced and it's hard to get people really into that, into, into the argument until they're well into the book. But, but basically the, the idea for this book came from conversations that I have been having in my adult life for the last 20 years with straight women. So I'm a lesbian. I came out in my early twenties, but many of my, um, closest women friends are straight women in relationships with men. Many of them now, since I'm in my late 40s, are divorced. And one of the things that I started to notice was that so many of these women spent a lot of time complaining about their relationships with men, um, complaining about men in general and complaining about the specifics of their particular relationships that the men they were with didn't do an equal amount of parenting work. The men they were with um, didn't do their fair share of maintaining the house. They maybe were a little emotionally absent um, or they expected a lot of emotional labor from their wives and girlfriends. And so just generally so much complaint and I started to to think about that, what I was hearing from straight women, 
in comparison with what I was hearing in the broader culture about uh, uh, basically, you know, isn't it so hard and sad and difficult to be gay because there's so much discrimination that being gay is sort of a sad and lonely life. And I just thought, wait a second, there's a contradiction here because my queer friends actually really love their queer lives. And it's the straight women in my life who seem miserable. So it was holding that tension in view that led me into this project. Is there a greater expectation in heterosexuality of, quote, happy ever after? Absolutely. I mean, you know, heterosexuality is the gold standard for relationships. Girls, more so girls than boys, but boys in a different way, are primed early in childhood through Disney movies and so forth and, you know, the toys that are marketed to them to imagine that uh, happiness, it comes with marriage and with, you know, a committed, loving, heterosexual relationship. And, you know, I want to be clear that this book really isn't about individual straight people. There are so, so many exceptions to to the rule, of course. Um, it's about straight culture and the false promises of straight culture and how much that um, ultimately causes damage for women and for men who were led to believe that heterosexuality was, or that straight culture and straight privilege was going to provide them with a lot of happiness, when in fact we know that half of heterosexual marriages end in divorce. There's just a lot of suffering there. Uh, it, I can't help wondering, I, I mentioned to you before we went on the air, Jean, that, that I, I grew up in a Leave it to Beaver house. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in my 60s. I grew up, you know, in the, in the 60s and, and 70s. And, um, you know, we had mom and dad at home and, and uh, I had a sister. We were the nuclear family. I don't think we even knew to call it that until well into the 60s. But it was um, kind of idyllic. You know, it's, it's, it's weird to say, but it was a functional household. And it was reinforced. And you mentioned this with... Uh, with with toys and movies and things it was reinforced by television programs and and films and the roles in our house seemed very clear and the expectations the needs met the expectations and so i i can't help wondering if there if the gold standard that you referenced a moment ago is um, just simply not met by individuals rather than a systemic problem. Hmm. Well, I think one way to think about that question or the context that you provided is to look at how functional was it really in the 1950s or for whom was it? so functional. So one of the chapters in this book um, is based on archival research of self-help 
books for mostly for women, but they really were marketed as marital self-help books starting in the early 20th century and then into the present. And what I found was that in the early 20th century, this is kind of, you know, 1900 to 1930 before the rise of the discipline of psychology, most marital self-help books were written by um, physicians like family doctors and sexologists, many of whom were eugenicists, people who believed that the fundamental goal was to encourage reproduction among you know, white, middle-class people and discourage reproduction among people that they imagined had, you know, a less desirable gene pool. And so they really um, were trying to encourage mostly straight white men and women to have more harmonious marriages because they believed that if they did, they would have sex more often and they would have children. But in attempting to... uh, explain why this was important, they also described in these books um, what they saw as the status quo for marriage at the time. And I was really shocked to see how many of these family doctors described um, such frequent marital rape that, um, you know, women were, what they were finding among their patients was that women were raped on their wedding night by their husbands. They were resentful. They were afraid of their husbands. They didn't want to have sex with their husbands. And so these early self-help books were really all about trying to um, help straight men and women find each other more desirable, um, better understand each other. And, and in that project, they recognized that there's nothing natural about men and women uh, being... being um, interested in one another, uh, friendly with one another, that that was something that had to be cultivated. And then, you know, when we move into the 1950s, it's an equally, though different, depressing story. So, you know, we start to see these marriage manuals really targeted at women, and now they're written by psychologists. And they're basically like instructions for women to... um, Understand that their husbands have more value than themselves, that, you know, when he comes home from work, the best thing that you can do is be quiet, don't bother him with any of your problems, Um, treat him like the king of the castle, he's, you know, having to deal with the stress of the public realm, and you're, you know, you should just be clean and look lovely, and that comes through in all of these self-help books, but also in um, all of the advertising of the time really communicated that message to women that, you know, their primary value was in making their husbands feel loved and affirmed, but their own needs, um, to even have needs, emotional needs, intellectual needs, was just inappropriate for women. So anyway, you know, this takes different forms through the 20th century, but we see that the through line is basically sexism, that, you know, women were repeatedly told that, Marriage is a sacrifice. It's a a self-sacrifice that you make in order to um, have children, and you're not really supposed to be happy. More with Professor Jane Ward, author of The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, straight ahead. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. The Spangled Dwarf in his bow tie. The infantry that don't ask why. I'm Bob Dylan. Remember those fabulous 60s? The marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artist who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by Janice Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees. What have they done to the rain by the Searchers? In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. Silent Night, 7 o'clock news by Simon and Garfunkel. Who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something that will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70K. Tom Sumner. 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Professor Jane Ward, author of The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, straight ahead. So I think when we look back at, like, the Leave it to Beaver, we have to think about, you know, were women really happy or were women really just conforming? Well, and and, and that's um, uh, certainly uh, an important way to look at it. Um, and, and that's why I was very careful in my phrasing to say, that the expectations were met. Um, yes. I, I don't know what all of the desires might have been, but, you know, there was this sense that the expectations were being met. Dad did what he was supposed to do. Mom did what she was supposed to do. Um, they weren't likely to talk to their children about money and sex and you know some of the things that that couples deal with um but uh coming up in that in that environment um it it left me and a lot of people from my generation not really knowing how to communicate Mm-hmm. When did I think com- that's right. When did communication become the answer to so many of these problems? And, and I'm asking it that way because you kind of gave a, 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 a brief history of of the writing and the thinking of um, first family doctors and then psychologists and so on. Um, a, a history through the self help books. Right. So the emphasis on communication comes in the 1990s and or it really peaks in the 1990s with John Gray's book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And, you know, that book is building on many of the themes that had been present for decades in the self-help literature for straight couples. But what it makes exceedingly clear that I think some of the other books had not is that uh, is that men and women don't naturally get along with one another and therefore marriages are kind of set up to fail unless men and women um, can recognize how fundamentally different they are and accept how fundamentally different they are and then learn how to communicate across those differences. So, you know, part of what happens in that book, and, and I, it's a very significant book as far as I'm concerned because it was actually the best-selling nonfiction book of the entire decade of the 1990s. I mean, that book sold millions of copies globally. It was translated into multiple languages. And that's pretty striking when you think about the central message of that book, which is that, you know, mostly men and women don't like each other. <laughs> And so they really have to do a lot of work to figure out how to manipulate each other into getting what they want. They, he teaches men and women a lot of tricks for getting their needs met. Um, so it's not really about... He, he doesn't believe that 
men and women can connect at a deeper level or that we could get to the root causes of the problems. He's interested in, in teaching men and women a series of tricks that will help them get their needs met. I, it was, it's kind of interesting, Jane. I was reading some material about your book, and I came across a phrase, building a foundation toward a future in which straight men like women so much that they actually like women. And I thought that was yeah. an interesting phrase. And the first thing that popped into my head was, I liked women a lot better before I got married. <laughs> okay, and why is that? <laughs> I, I'm, I, don't, I have no idea what that means, Jane. But, that's, but, but it occurred to me that I really did like women. That didn't necessarily mean I was going to have successful marriages. Right, right. Well, in many ways, straight marriages, like I said, are set up to fail. I mean, one of the arguments that I make in this book is that you can't have a society in which misogyny or men's hatred of women is kind of still present in the broader culture, in the, you know, the popular culture that we consume. You can't have a president of the United States who brags about grabbing women's genitals. You, you can't think that all of that is going to be circulating in the broader environment, but also tell men they're supposed to really respect and love women. And then, you know, boom, you're in, you're in a marriage and you're supposed to hold those tensions together. And so what I argue at the end of this book, the last chapter of the book is about how can we heal this? And um, it's precisely um, the the phrase that you just mentioned, which I call deep heterosexuality. That it's not that we need straight people to be queerer, or we need straight people to, <laughs> you know, have a different sexual orientation. It's that we need straight people's sexual orientation, especially men, to be more authentic. Because from a lesbian perspective, if you're attracted to women. You're not just attracted to women's bodies. You want what's best for women collectively. You are invested in women as a group. You want women's freedom. You want to know that the women that you are with or the women that you're having sex with are freely choosing you. You know, you're wanting to know that they are having, like, liberated sex with you, you know. And so... um so basically, I'm offering, like, here's a set of tips from a lesbian about how to to love women, to have sex with women, and to respect women at the same time. Are, are gay marriages vastly different than heterosexual marriages? Well, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, I am in no way suggesting that gay people are perfect, obviously. You know, we hurt each other, we cheat on each other, we lie to each other, you know, we're humans, just like everybody else. So, but what is different is that our relationships aren't set up from the beginning um, with a kind of gender antagonism or with a presumption that we've brought together two people with such fundamentally different genders that we might as well be from two different planets that so we're really going to have to struggle to want, understand one another. So because of that, you don't have, you know, in gay marriages this idea of like an old ball and chain or feeling trapped or, you know, it doesn't really make sense to have a bachelor party organized around your like your last night of freedom because 
nobody's relating to marriage as a kind of um, containment or sacrifice in the way that straight culture often imagines it. And so because of that, I think because there's an egalitarianism that's built into queer culture, um, the research does bear this out. It does show that um, same-sex couples are much more likely to equally divide household and parenting labor. And since we know from research on divorce, since we know that women initiate the majority of divorces, and we know that women's sense that the marriage was unjust in some way is one of the primary causes of divorce. Um, in that way, I think same-sex relationships are better set up for success because they're more egalitarian. I find it interesting that in uh, heterosexual marriages, the... Um the bride is given away by her father right. to her husband, but it's often the man that feels trapped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a, a little it's irony a weird there. Dynamic. Right, right. It's a bizarre dynamic to, um, to live in a culture that so glorifies, idolizes heterosexuality, you know, that thinks it's just so wonderful when the people, when at the same time we're telling the story about marriage as a kind of trap, literally, you know, the imagery of the ball and chain is that a man is shackled by this marriage. So, you know, and we just have decades of a story about battle of the sexes and, um, and, you know, so much, I talk about all of the examples in straight culture of things that straight couples can buy, you know, t-shirts that are jokes about how miserable their marriage is. And it's just, it's, it's a bizarre paradox. Oh, Henny Youngman, you know, take my wife, please. Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So, so this, you know, the reason then for this book is to say for queer people looking at this from the outside heterosexuality looks odd at best and pretty miserable at worst. And so many queer people actually feel tremendous relief to have escaped um, what often looks like a pretty miserable situation. And that's not something that we get to hear very often because it you know, doesn't, it's it's not consistent with heteronormativity. It's not something that straight people want to hear, so therefore we don't get to hear it, even though it is the experience that many gay people have. What percentage um, is, at one time, I think it was something like 50% of all marriages fail. Is, are the numbers still about that? They are, I mean, what's happening now is that fewer people are marrying and you know so I'm thinking about my brother who's straight and has been in a relationship with his girlfriend for over 15 years and they've just decided not to get married and you know he's he's about to turn 40 um we know that people younger generations are less likely to get married. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that affects the divorce statistics because it might mean that, you know, people 
are self-selecting into marriage or people don't have to divorce because they're not married in the first place. Really, if they if they decide it's not working for them, they just walk away. Right. Yeah. What are there are, is there a formula for a successful marriage heterosexual or otherwise? Yes, I mean I I think there probably are many formulae, but the one that I put forward in the book is that we have been trying for about 120 years now the formula in the self-help industry, which is um, to say, men and women, you are so different from one another. So what you need to do is learn to manipulate one another. And so that might look like, for, for instance, the men are from Mars, women are from Venus, the, you know, John Gray says, you'll never get your husband to do his equal share of the household labor. So you have to do things like put the trash can out in the middle of the room, but not mention it so that he knows to take the trash out. Or you have to, when he does the littlest thing, let's say that he picks up his socks, then you have to shower him with praise because then that will encourage him to do it again. Or, you know, you, many of these, of the books that have come out in the last 20 years are about teaching women how to give men the, the amount of affirmation and praise that you would expect a parent to give a toddler, you know, just like, <laughs> oh my God, look at you, you cleaned the bathroom, what, you know? And so none of this actually works because, you know, it's, again, it's been offered to men and women for 120 years. It does not actually resolve the problem, which is that women ultimately get really tired of having to mother men. Um, if you have two adults in a relationship, one adult shouldn't have to constantly be showering the other one with praise for basic human functioning, like picking up one's own thoughts. So instead of that, what I suggest is that um, men and women um, develop basically a deep friendship with one another, a kind of mutual regard that is based on um, respect and true knowing of one another, a lot of identification with one another, and that they abandon this idea that they're fundamentally different kinds of people. A lot goes into how that happens, but that's the paradigm shift that I think we need. It's, I've heard for years that um, kind of kind of an old wives' tale, which in itself is kind of an offensive phrase, but um, that men are looking for their mothers and women are looking for their fathers. Is there or has there ever been any truth to that? And and is that changing generationally? Well, I think that that is a sort of a self-fulfilling story. It's a story that benefits gender inequality. And it's a story, it's an outcome that gender inequality reproduces. So, because another way of saying that is, 
that men are looking to marry a woman who will take care of them, who will basically, you know, um, do all of the basic self-care for them that they should be doing for themselves. And that women are looking for um, an authority figure, you know, a, a, a sort of powerful man who... Um, tells them what to do, basically. But again, we know that actually, while that story may be true for men, in the end, it doesn't work for women. Women don't want to stay in a marriage with a man who can't take care of himself. So I think it's an outdated story. I think um, to the extent that it's true, it's true because gender inequality makes it true that people would go out to seek that because maybe that's what their parents did or that's what they've been told is appropriate or that's what they've been told is how how heterosexuality works. But does it make people happy? No. A lot of the behaviors we're talking about are learned, either from the role models we've had in our lives or media influences, societal influences. Are there things that we need to be aware of and avoid so that we're not negatively impacted? I would say a good place to start is to be critical of any narrative, whether it's in a movie or a television show or a book, about how women and men are fundamentally different. Because um, we have a lot of research now suggesting that much of what we have believed about that is simply inaccurate <laughs> and that those the differences that do exist are um, produced by cu the culture itself. So in the same way that we've learned, we generally do a pretty good job now in recognizing that you know, if somebody's talking about how white people and black people are two fundamentally different kinds of humans um, who, with different skill sets, who were born with different traits, we know to be skeptical of that because we know that that narrative has been used to cause a lot of harm and we know that it's pretty much false. But people are far slower to develop their critical skills uh, for thinking about that with gender. People are pretty attached to the idea that men and women are fundamentally different. And when presented with the research that um, demonstrates that's not the case, they, you know, want to say, oh, you know, that's just political correctness. But I guess the question I want to pose is, you know, what are you gaining from that uh, attachment to that story? And how who is it actually benefiting? Because um, what I show in this book is that that story mostly just benefits men. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is this um, this this argument that's often used um, in in uh, um, criticizing gay marriage and and gay relationships that. It's somehow contrary to biology. Mm -hmm. 
Well, um, there's so much great um, biological research. This is not my area, but I come across it every now and then. Our students send me links to, you know, there are a lot of ways that animal reproduce <laughs> and there are anim- you know there are animals that engage in what we might consider a homosexual sex there are also animals that repro- who have gender fluidity within their own body over the course of their life there are asexual animals i mean there's so so that idea is often disconnected from the reality the very diverse reality of species sexuality, of multi-species sexuality. But it's also just a homophobic argument. I mean, it's kind of hard to, to move from there when someone is committed to the idea that homosexuality is unnatural. We know that queer people can and do become parents. I'm a parent myself. So if the concern is that there's no way that queer people could repopulate the planet, we know that's just simply inaccurate. More with Professor Jane Ward, author of The Tragedy of Heterosexuality.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at 4 in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
are black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman's sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Professor Jane Ward, author of The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, straight ahead. It doesn't take a heterosexual relationship. It just takes an egg and a sperm. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but but that's but that's an argument that's been used a lot, um, and and I wonder how often that influences people to maybe squelch their own um, their own freedom by buying mm-hmm. into it. Right, definitely. I'm, I mean, hom- heteronormativity or the belief that heterosexuality is the most natural, normal, and ethical way of sexual relating is the air we breathe. It's very powerful. Um, You know, people experience punishment when they don't conform to it, and they experience tremendous rewards when they do. And so it's no wonder that so many people do identify as heterosexual, even when they have same-sex desires. Fortunately, that is changing dramatically with each generation. So, um, you know, we know now that with millennials, when asked to rate themselves on a sexual orientation scale, almost 50% of them um, identify as not completely heterosexual. And that's a really powerful because, you know, we used to, those kinds of surveys used to basically ask people, do you identify as a heterosexual or a homosexual? Um, Maybe sometimes they include bisexuality there as an option. But with savvier researchers or research tools, um, when you allow people to say, you know, to, to have a broader spectrum on which to identify, we find that a tremendous um, number of younger people now will say, yeah, I don't feel fully heterosexual. So I think as the cult- broader culture changes, as well, I think I know, we see younger people being far more um, open and um, curious about the range of sexual desires they're experiencing or that they could potentially experience. Jane, we're getting close to the end of our time, Um, and I am finding this to be such a fascinating conversation, and I realize we're only scratching the surface. My my guest is Jane Ward, uh, Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of California, Riverside. Her new book, The tragedy of heterosexuality is not nearly as scary as it might sound to some heterosexuals. (laughs) Um, But, uh, Jane, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, what some good resources are, and to find out if you have a website. I do. Um, I'm at janewardphd.com, and I'm also... 
this book is also available on Amazon. It's available as of tomorrow um, or September 1st. And um, I also tweet at the Queer Jane. Well, Jane, it's been an honor and a privilege to uh, chat with you a little bit. Thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Take care. Once again, that was uh, Jane Ward, or I should say Dr. Jane Ward, who is a professor of uh, gender and sexuality studies at University of California, Riverside. And she has uh, written a book called The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. We're going to have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
little Sheila Land is helping me hang on to summertime just a little bit longer. I know it's the 1st of September and uh, next weekend is uh, Labor Day weekend and that's the uh, unofficial end of summer but uh, I'm hanging on to it as long as I can. It seems because of this this whole being in the bunker thing it seems like summer just kind of went by and I really didn't get to a chance to enjoy it as much as I would have liked to have. Um, anyway, uh, my apologies to uh, Kimberly Friedman, who uh, called in this morning to be part of the first hour. We've uh, been experiencing some problems with our live stream. It's been intermittent at best, but we completely lost the first hour of today's show. However, um, replays of this uh, show... Uh, even though there have been interruptions in the second and probably will be in the third as well. Um, replays on the radio and online will be intact. But uh, if you're live streaming the show and we're popping in and out, um, that's that's what's going on. And uh, Kimberly was supposed to be my guest the first hour. The first hour got completely obliterated, but she has agreed. We haven't set a date yet, but we're going to reschedule that interview with um, certified uh, hypnotherapist um, Kimberly Friedmutter. Um, coming up in the uh, next hour, we're going to hear a little bit more from Sheila Landis, and then we're going to uh, talk with... Um, we're going to enter the mythological world of the Maya gods with uh, author J.C. Cervantes, New York Times best-selling Storm Runner series, and the third and final book, The Shadow Crosser. So that's all straight ahead. Um, stay tuned if you can. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 